0: Well now, you probably have heard this silly little story, let me tell it to you, it's quite a well-known little one, talking about a a man who was stuck on his rooftop in a flood, and he was praying to God for help. And after a while, another man in a rowboat came, uh, and he shouted to the man on the roof, jump in, I can save you. The stranded man shouted back, no, it's okay, I'm praying to God, and he is going to save me. So the rowboat went on and the waters continued to rise. Then a motorboat came by and the driver in the motorboat shouted, jump in, I can save you. And to this, the stranded man said, no, thanks. I'm praying to God and he is going to save me. I have faith. So the motorboat went on and the waters continued to rise. Then the helicopter came past and the pilot shouted down, grab this rope and I will lift you to safety. To this, again, the man replied, "'No thanks, I'm praying to God, and he is going to save me. "'I have faith.' So the helicopter reluctantly flew away. Soon the water rose above the rooftop, and the man drowned. And at the gates of heaven, he finally got a chance to discuss the whole situation with God. That's why it's a silly little story. At which point he exclaimed, "You know, "'I had faith in you, but you didn't save me. "'You let me drown. You let me be lost.' I don't understand why. To this, God replied, well, I sent you a rowboat, and I sent you a motorboat, and I sent you a helicopter. What more did you expect? And the story illustrates, really, I want you to think about this, the stubbornness, actually, of thinking that God must do things your way. The way God does things must look the way you expect it to. We were reminded last week, weren't we, if you were here with us, that God's ways are actually inscrutable to us often. We can't figure them out. But they're not always, they're not always confusing. Sometimes God reveals things to us plainly and clearly and spells them out in black and white for us so that we are without excuse when we reject, when we are stubborn, when we ignore what God is saying to us. Now we're going to see that kind of willful rejection of God's revelation as we look at the book of Acts and the close of the book of Acts this morning. But we will also, don't worry, finish the book with a bright note of optimism, I hope. So fear not. First of all, let's catch up with Paul. We left him last week on the island of Malta, along with 275 Fellow passengers, their ship had been wrecked there off of Malta, and the last paragraph, if you look at your Bible, the last paragraph of chapter 27 tells us about how even in this situation, Paul is able to bring God's blessing to the whole of that island. I I believe the population was probably quite a small; it was quite a small place. But the island chief, a man we're told named Publius, invites these visitors into his home they come onto his estate he entertains them for three days during which Paul learns that Publius's father is ill and so Paul goes to him and he prays for him note he prays for this sick man then he places his hands on him and he bestows a healing on him And this opens a wonderful opportunity for Paul to minister to all the sick of the island. It's amazing how word, good news gets around fairly quickly about things like this, doesn't it? All the sick of the island are brought to Paul and they are healed. Now, Paul doesn't report that anybody else on the island, or anybody actually on the island, uh, became a believer. But Paul and his two friends do spend three months on the island. I think we can you know, fill in the blanks, can't we? Verse 10 re- records actually here that the islanders were really keen to bless this whole party of people uh, with provisions, generous provisions, before sending them on their way. In actually, fact, church tradition, which can be a bit of an iffy source, says that Publius, the governor of the island, did convert to Christianity, and that he was actually the pastor of a church on that island for For the next over 30 years. Maybe that's true, I don't know. wouldn't surprise me. But all that aside, the rest of chapter 8 here, the final chapter of the book of Acts, tells us about the last leg of Paul's journey to Rome and what he did there. So verses 11 to 16, if you have a look, it charts the final installment of the travelogue. You've got a map there on the screen if it helps you. They sail north Stopping at a place, all confusing names, aren't they? First of all, stopping at Syracuse on the east coast of Sicily there. Then Regium, which is right at the bottom of Italy. And then going up between Italy and Sicily, they sail up to their final port, uh, Puteoli, which sounds very Italian, doesn't it? Puteoli, uh, which is basically Naples. So they stop in at Naples, not far from Rome. Now, there's clearly a church in the area of Naples, and Luke records that they had an opportunity to visit with them for a week and to be cared for there. must have been very refreshing. But after this, very interestingly, Christians from Rome hear that Paul is on his way, and they are so excited that a group of them make a 30-mile journey down the Appian Way and welcome him and, and walk with him that final stretch back to Rome when Paul arrives in Rome he's allowed to live in his own lodgings Uh, he's got a soldier we're told guarding him so this is a soldier guarding him 24 7 a man to whom he's probably chained by one you know handcuffed with one hand to the the soldier at all times but how excited Paul must have been to have finally made it to Rome there's something satisfying about the story getting there isn't it This is just as Jesus had foretold that Paul would do. That you have to testify in Rome, Paul. Now there's clearly already a church in the city of Rome. Probably it was started by people that were in Jerusalem at Pentecost and returned to Rome. We know there's a church there because Paul's written a letter to them, hasn't he? We often think of it as Paul's magnum opus, the letter of Romans, wonderful, full of rich theology. Maybe it's that letter that's got them so excited that they want to come down and meet with them and talk. Paul, you really confused us with this bit and that bit in Romans. Let's talk about it on the way to Rome. But there's a church there. But I think, actually, in the big narrative of the book of Acts, that's charting out the progress of the gospel to the world we're supposed to think of Rome really as basically being synonymous with the nations or even the ends of the earth that the gospel is to go to at least in the sense that it was the hub of the empire and probably contained citizens from every country in the known world right there so you remember from the first chapter of Acts that the gospel has to go to Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria, these ever widening circles, and then to the ends of the earth. And really, I think in this last chapter, you've got the beginning of the end, the beginning of the end, as finally Paul gets to the center of the empire. But the first thing that Paul does when he arrives in Rome is he meets with the Jewish leaders. Paul has an initial meeting that we read about uh, with these leaders, and it's just three days after his arrival, and he's, he goes to them to brief them on the situation. Let's, ha- let's pick up the story in verse 17 and look at Paul's address to them. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, "'My brothers, although I have done nothing wrong against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans.' They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and to talk with you because it's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. So basically, Paul is telling them that he is in Rome because he was left with no other options. Actually, that's the situation, isn't it? He actually says, look, I have no quarrel with the Jewish people, nor do I have any problem with any of the customs of our ancestors. Actually, as Paul said before, he keeps the law of Moses. He's got no problem with any of that. But it's the Jews of Jerusalem who are simply against him. The reason Paul's in Rome has got more to do with hatred, actually, then it has to do with any logical reasoning. And they wouldn't let the matter drop, would they? Even though the Romans decided Paul was innocent of anything worthy of death. So Paul had to appeal to Caesar. Or else he had to go before a crooked court that wanted him dead. Now the Jews of Rome say that they have, and this is really, I think, a little strange, they've received no information from Jerusalem about Paul, from the Jews. Uh, Maybe... You know, it's maybe it would have been hard to explain (laughs) the problem that they had with Paul, perhaps slightly embarrassing because they didn't really have anything. But they, the the Jews in, in, in Rome certainly know about Paul, and they certainly know that there's a lot of talk going on around the empire and even in the city about this sect, this Jewish sect called the Way, the Church. Well, Paul makes it clear again in verse 20 that actually this whole issue, he shows him his chains. You can see him shaking his chains. The reason I'm wearing this, he says, boils down to a matter of the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel. The great hope of God's people. That's what these chains are about. Deliverance, blessing, and peace for God's people. I'm wearing these chains because of my hope in that. The hope we share This, says Paul, is why he's in chains. And so in sum, first, Paul's done nothing against the Jews. He's done nothing. Secondly, the the Romans are bringing no charge against him. It's very odd, isn't it, this whole thing? And thirdly, he's bringing no charge against the Jews. And yet here he is, wearing this chain. So the upshot then of this initial meeting, we're told, Luke tells us, is that everybody wants to give Paul a fair hearing. They want to do this so that they can know what it is then that he, what what the Christian church, believes about the hope of Israel. There's something about the hope of Israel that's got everybody fired up. What is it? So verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. And they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God, and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. Well, it seems like it's a pretty huge gathering, doesn't it? It's it's held at a later date where Paul is staying, and the crowds Large numbers of the Jewish community in Rome turn out. Paul is able to spend, says Luke, from morning till evening explaining from the books of Moses, he's opening up their Bible to them, the true nature of the kingdom of God and of its king, Jesus. I mean, what an opportunity! full of opportunities acts isn't it paul effectively has the ears of all the jews in rome right here on this day and first of all let's look at those two things first of all this is my first point really he speaks about the kingdom of god the kingdom of god this is actually what jesus preached about all the time isn't it he went around galilee declaring the kingdom of god all of his parables are the kingdom of god is like and then he he preaches and explains the kingdom of god Paul's doing the same thing. Now we noted before, and it's worth just getting this in your heads historically, that the expectation of first century Jews was that the kingdom of God was in fact Israel. It's them, it's Israel. They were waiting for the great king to arrive. The king that had been promised by the prophets of the Old Testament the king who would make Israel great again, you know, if he was standing in a sort of Donald Trump kind of, kind of way. They probably imagined a, ki- a kingdom that, A, had the military power of David, the great king of Israel, who defeated their enemies on every side and ushered in an era of peace. That's what you know about David, isn't it? He's a military leader. He's mighty. He's a giant slayer, Right? So they wanted a kingdom like that, but also with the wealth of David's son, Solomon, who created such prosperity in the kingdom that the Bible tells us silver was as common as stones. I mean, this is a very wealthy kingdom. Imagine that. Military might of David, the wealth of Solomon. What a kingdom. That would be a kingdom to be proud of, wouldn't it? The greatest of all nations. It would be Israel's turn to be the world's superpower. And if indeed that was the kingdom that the Jews were waiting for, think about that for a moment. If that was, then actually Rome, rather than having a problem with Christianity, should have a problem with the Jewish people. I mean, that's a kingdom that's a threat to their empire, isn't it? The new superpower. But that actually is not the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. Actually, I think this is so relevant even today, actually. when you you meet Orthodox Jews, this is probably almost exactly still the hope that they have. And yet they're wrong. According to Jesus, this is not the kingdom Jesus came to establish. And nor is it actually quite what the prophets were speaking about. How so? Well, Jesus puts his finger on it when he says these words to the Roman governor Pilate. Listen, this is what Jesus says. He said in John 18, my kingdom, the kingdom of God, is not of this world if it were my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the jews but now my kingdom is from another place that's a really important declaration there isn't it that's really enlightening about what the kingdom of god is my kingdom is not of this world says jesus the kingdom of god is a spiritual reality in this world. And it will come, but it will only come to its full physical manifestation in the world that is to come. So make no mistake, God's kingdom is, first of all, it is a present reality. It is a thing. Every person, every one of us in this room, in this country, in this world, has their, citizen, has their citizenship in one of only two kingdoms. That's how the Bible lays this out. You are either a, ki- a citizen of the kingdom of this present world, the whole system of this world, or you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's one or the other. Now, I'm sure that uh, we all know, because we were all told many, many times, that Tiago uh, was very proud to gain his British citizenship a little while ago. That means that even though we will always think of him as our our beautiful Brazilian brother, he is in fact now a citizen of the United Kingdom. There has been a, a change in his citizenship, whether he wants to acknowledge it or not. Now he needs to understand that if he goes and visits his family in Brazil, he's actually a foreigner over there. Okay, that's messed up, isn't it? He needs to teach them how to make tea properly. He needs to teach them about the nuances of the science of biscuit dunking in the tea. Likewise, though, those who've put their trust in Jesus Christ. We have a new citizenship. We're no longer at home here in this kingdom. We're foreigners who belong to another kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world is a doomed kingdom. For all of its beauty, and it is beautiful. It has the fingerprints of a good creator all over it, doesn't it, this world? But yet this world is subject to decay. It it all decays and ruins and spoils. This kingdom with its decay and its its ever-increasing sin... The wickedness that that fills our, our media stream all the time. One day that will be judged. It's a doomed kingdom, it's a rotting kingdom. But the kingdom of God is eternal, it is wonderful, it is full of grace and blessing, and it will never pass away. It is a far superior kingdom. You can't even compare the two. Now, Paul describes the process of obtaining the citizenship in God's kingdom, in his letter to the church in Colossae, he he gives a really good statement here. He says this, that we joyfully give thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion, the kingdom of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Entrance to this kingdom, the kingdom of God, you see, requires that all of your sins are dealt with. In fact, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, listen to these words, Of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person. Such a man's an idolater. idolater." Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So, how do you qualify then for citizenship? You don't. It is the look, it's the Father who qualifies you. Look at look at those first verses there. It's the Father who qualifies you. It's a kingdom entered through rescue. The redemption. The forgiveness that we need is found only in Jesus Christ, the son that he loves. And it is obtained only by faith. That's the kingdom. A wonderful kingdom. A kingdom of blessing. But what about the king? That brings us to Paul's second thing. The king. The king of God. And once again, Paul tries to reason with this great crowd of Jews and to prove to them, as he's done everywhere that he's gone in the synagogues, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Messiah is basically the same word as Christ. It means anointed. It refers to the king of God's kingdom. Have a look at verse 23 again. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He's opening their Bible to them. Showing them that this king, showing them who this king really is, all through what Moses said, all through what the prophets said. Surely, Paul led them through scripture after scripture, showing them that everything that Moses and the prophets said about the Messiah was fulfilled in the birth, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. He was the one. I mean, let's just take his birth narrative because it's Christmas and all. Christmas is nearly on us at the very least. The virgin birth. Look at the look at this is what the prophets say. Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. The place of his birth. Micah 5, verse two. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small amongst the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Herod's massacre of the children. Jeremiah 31, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning a great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. The escape to Egypt as they escaped from Herod. Hosea 11... Verse 1 When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. All of these prophetic echoes pointing towards Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. One scholar states that conservatively, he says, Jesus fulfills at least 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry. 300 times that the Old Testament speaks of things that this Messiah, this King will do, all of them fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus fits the bill. He's the one you've been waiting for, Paul says. But the trouble is, he is the one that your leaders, your leaders in Jerusalem, the leaders of your religion, they rejected him. It was the Jewish leaders, the very same ones who are seeking to take Paul's life by the way, who were behind the murder and the crucifixion of the Messiah. And to reject him is to share in their sin, to have the same hearts that they had. And that is a huge deal, because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again. The king. He's king because he rules even over the grave. And he's risen to take his place at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, from where he will judge. He will return to judge the earth. And he will do that himself. He is the king of kings. God's king came the first time. And we remember it as Christmas, don't we? As a savior for the world. Gentle and gracious, offering salvation. But the return of the king? That will be a fearful thing for those who reject him, who are not ready for his arrival. It will be a a fearful thing for those who've not had their their, their sin dealt with, who are not members of his kingdom, who are not citizens of his kingdom. Why is that? Why will it be bad if you haven't had your sins dealt with? Why is it actually, why is it any business of God, what I do and do not do? You ever thought, a lot of people want to ask that question. I'll tell you, Firstly, and this is only a trivial thing, but because our sin actually doesn't just impact ourselves, it impacts everybody around us. If you think your sin doesn't impact anyone else, only you, you're deluded. But secondly, and far more importantly, because all sin, and you need to understand this, all sin is sin against God. It is breaking the king's commands. If God is, you're a, my creator, then he necessarily rules over us. Whether we acknowledge that or not, we owe him our obedience simply by merit of the fact that we live in his kingdom, in his world. He is our maker, and he's the one who blesses, provides, and sustains our life. And what we conveniently forget is that all of our sins have two dimensions. You ever thought about that? We sin against each other, right? Yes. And we should, we, you know, we should seek forgiveness from those that we hurt. But you can't just leave it there. Because at the same time as I sin against you, when I sin against you, I also sin against God. There's this sort of horizontal dimension to our sin. But at the same time, vertical. Why? Because God says, love your neighbor as yourself. So I've broken that law and I've hurt you. My sin has two directions, do you see? Every sin is an offense. Against God. And it is to God's King then that I need to bow the knee and turn to for forgiveness. I need to bring my life, my sin to Him. And what I need to do is actually as simple as ABC to acknowledge my guilt, to just come before Him and say, "Here Here's what I'm like. I'm not pretending. B, to believe in Jesus, to trust him to be my saviour and see, to confess him as my king. Bowing the knee to him, from this day forwards, he will rule. That's how to be a citizen of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God and the king of God. That's the message of Christianity. It's a message we want to preach all throughout Christmas, isn't it? But this is also a message that divides people as it does with the crowd that's standing in front of Paul at this moment. Have a look at verse 24. Luke's very clear here, isn't he? Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. And to those who would not believe, and notice, we're not talking about those who did not believe. We're talking about those who would not believe. To those, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says this in verse 25. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when He said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this is Paul speaking now. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their eyes, and they, sorry, hear with their ears. Uh, And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Do you see how their unbelief is a willful act? Why have their hearts become calloused and hardened? Because their ears are blocked. And because they have closed their eyes sort of reminds me of, you remember the story earlier on in Acts when Stephen preaches in Jerusalem and the crowds, after he's finished preaching, put their hands over their ears and run at him to stone him. It's that kind of a hard-hearted attitude, isn't it? So Paul has walked them through the scriptures that they know so well, the scriptures they claim to believe, and yet even with it put right in front of them and preached into their ears, They don't want to hear. They don't want to hear what he has to say. And yet, God's kingdom is still, my third and final point this morning, a kingdom that grows. Odd that, isn't it? Look at verse 28. Therefore, says Paul, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. They will listen. So you might not want to get on the boat. And escape that flood. You might not want what God has graciously provided for your rescue. But others will. The kingdom of God is a growing kingdom. And it will grow with or without you. The Jews had no excuses. Just a hard heart. A decision to not believe. Despite everything presented to them. The Gentiles, though, all the other nations of the world had and still have less reason to believe. Isn't that remarkable? They know nothing of God's purposes revealed in the scriptures because they don't have the scriptures. All they know of God is just what's revealed in the natural world around them, their consciences within them. That's all they know. They've no written revelation. And yet, says Paul, they will listen. And the nations will indeed flood into the church. God's kingdom on earth. Which really brings us to our own own nation today. Interesting. This week, uh, you know, there was that census data from England that was published on the BBC sort of reporting that this census has revealed that for the first time, uh, since we've been taking census, I guess, uh, less than half of the population of England professes to be Christian. It's another one of those sort of nails in the coffin of the whole idea that we're a Christian nation. And you can't help, I think, but draw a parallel when you think about it. Here we are, a nation with a long Christian heritage. A nation that's had the gospel preached up and down this land since at least, at least the end of the 6th century. Isn't that something? Maybe even earlier than that. A nation that's had God's word in our own language for over 600 years. How much revelation do you want? We have Bibles everywhere. Ridiculous numbers of translations in the language that we speak. And yet, it seems that our hearts too are hardening. Our ears are becoming dull. Men and women and children They're closing their eyes to what God has graciously put before us. It's a sad thing, isn't it? To become complacent and hardened. And yet, almost every person I speak to who claims to have rejected Christianity has never even read, when you ask them, a single book of the Bible. Not even one one part of it. All that revelation out there for them. On a plate for them rejected without even really looking it's just like this isn't it or they know all they need to know about jesus don't they through hearsay tv programs and sound bites it's all they need and they can just sweep it away and yet despite the hardness of the hearts that we encounter i want you to be confident in this this morning others will listen others will listen Just amazing, isn't it? The fastest growing church in the world today. Do you know what it is? You know this, don't you? It's Iran. Imagine that. Iranians. In the 1980s, there were 500 Christians in that entire country. A Muslim country. According to Operation World, since the 1990s, even with the church driven underground, it is estimated that over 1 million Iranians have seen Islam for what it is, and have turned to Christ and been joined to his church. So this then, as we finish the book of Acts, it's a warning and an encouragement to us. We must pray, mustn't we? That the the, the eyes uh, will be opened, the hearts will be softened of our neighbours, of those around us, that God would, would just make a way for his word to be heard. But we must never doubt that God's kingdom is And always will be a growing kingdom. We must not ever stop telling the next person. And then the next person. About the kingdom of God. About the king of God. It's a kingdom that can't be stopped by any storm. By any efforts, any disasters or crises of creation. And it cannot be stopped by the hardness of men's hearts. Or the sin of men's hearts. Some may listen. Some may not listen. Others will listen. The kingdom of God will continue to spread. And as the kingdom of God spreads, let us trust his word. Let us continue to herald that gospel far and wide until our king returns. That is actually the ongoing story of Acts. We're in that final chapter, aren't we? You and I are in there taking the gospel to those who will listen. We go with that promise and we go with the grace of God. That's the story of Acts.